0: If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the Old Testament book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 14. And uh, before we move into the message, I think I received word that Tim and Renee Shepherd are here. Tim and Renee, are y'all here? You're right there. Right, I want you and your family to stand up. Come on, all y'all stand up over here. What is so cool is that many of you are clapping and you have no idea why you're clapping. Uh, And you're looking to the person next to you and saying, it's Tim Shepard. Oh my gosh. <laughs> He's not a country music star. Uh, Tim uh, was called uh, out of this church into the chaplaincy ministry. And uh, they have been serving in South Korea and have recently been reassigned to the state of Washington. And so they're sort of making a tour around before he heads back up there. And so we are thrilled to have you guys back with us. And so uh, for those uh, who know them, and even if you don't, when the service is over, you need to go by and talk to him. Guys, just using him in a mighty way. So great to see y'all. Thank, thanks for being here. Um, Numbers chapter 14. You say, whoa, what's in Numbers 14? Well, I need to tell you what's in 13 before I can get you to 14. Uh we have vacation Bible school and it was called the Spy Academy so thought I would do a message tied to spies the first spies that were uh that were really uh talked about here in the um uh in the Old Testament uh, are the spies that went out to spy out the promised land. And so last week we looked at numbers 13 and what Brought us to that point is that the children of Israel were in captivity in Egypt for about 430 years, and then God called a man Moses, and Moses was God's instrument to help lead these uh, nation out of Egypt and taking them to the promised land. In about 650 years before that, God had promised Abraham, "I will build a great nation through you, and I will put you in a wonderful land." You'll have a great nation, and you'll have a land. And so all these years, six hundred over 600 years, waiting for that promise to be true. And now God has called the man, Moses, to lead the children of Israel, and they will go through this wilderness, and they will go into the promised land. And so as you read through the book of Exodus and get halfway through Numbers, you then come to the point to where they stand right on the edge of the promised land. And as they're standing on the edge of the promised land, there were some suggestions made by the leaders to say, why don't we go and spy out the land and see the best access routes that we can get in there? And so God thought that sounded good. So he told them, he says, here is what you will do. You will go into the land. And what I want you to do is I want you to evaluate the land. Is it a good land? Just like I promised you. I want you also to look at the people. Uh, are there different people groups there? Are they strong or are they weak? And then I also want you to look at their cities. Are they just living in tents or do they have fortifications? Come back, give a report on those three things. And so each tribe made up of tens of thousands of people selected one leader from their tribe. Well-respected men that they could trust and who had tons of influence. And they selected and said, you'll be one of the ones to go. So 12 tribes, 12 leaders. And he's 12 leaders Got their marching orders and they left and they covered anywhere from 350 to 500 miles all through this area. And they came back, and when they came back after 40 days, they gave a report. In fact, part of their report was they said uh, they had been encouraged to bring back some fruit from the land, and so they cut off this huge cluster of grapes and they brought these grapes with them, and they had pomegranates and other fruit. And they brought all this food and they laid it before the people and they said, Hey, we gotta tell you, the land is incredible. Man, we've been walking in this desert stuff for about two years. You're not gonna believe what this land looks like. It's just like God said, flowing with milk and honey. And what that means is it's prosperous, it's wonderful, it's the place you wanna be. It is great. And so all of them agreed that the land was good, but then there was ten out of the twelve that said, No, that's the good news, but let me tell you the bad news. Yes, the land is good. But the bad news is there are a lot of folks there that are pretty rough. I mean, we got ites everywhere. We got Amorites, Hittites, Jebusites, Canaanites. And all of these folks are there, and they live in strong, fortified cities. And there's also a group called Anak, and they're known as the giants. And so they're all these big people. They're giants. They're mean. They're tough. They're in big cities. And we just felt like grasshoppers in front of them. And so what we're saying is we don't need to go in. We don't need to go in. It's too difficult. Well, what we did was we took those, those spies, those 12, and we broke it into two groups. Number one, we looked at the trusting two, and it was Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb, they were the trusting two spies, and they were energized by faith. They were so excited because when they went into that land and they saw how great the land was, they came back and they were pumped. And because they remembered They remembered God's promises. And they said, you know, God promised us that he would give us this land. They remembered God's power. Look at how he's helped us through these two years, how he split the Red Sea, all the things that he's done. We feel good about that. They remembered God's presence. He has been with us from day one. He's been with us for these two years and they remembered God's past. All the things he'd done in the past, all the ways he'd helped us in the past. And because of all of this, his promises, his power, his presence, his past, because of all of this, they could boldly say, let's go up at once. Let's occupy the land for we will be able to overcome it. Let's take the land. They were all fired up. Well, that was the trusting too. Well, then you had the terrified 10. And the terrified 10 were the ones that said, no, nah, that's pretty scary. And what they did was they magnified the problems and then they minimized the resources they magnified the problems. We were like grasshoppers in their sights. And then if they magnified the problems, then they minimized the resources because they didn't bring God into it at all. They totally discounted all that he had done those last two years. And they said, we do not need to go into the land. And that's how it ended. We are like grasshoppers. And so many of you went home and you said, well, what happens? You got to come back this week. So what happened? Well, Numbers 14 begins to show you exactly what happened. So after they heard the report, this is what they did. Verse 14, uh, excuse me, chapter 14, verse 1. It says, and all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. They raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. What they did, it says they wailed and wept all night. Now, I don't know if you've ever been uh, in an area where people, especially in the Middle East, when at a funeral or whatever, people began to do weeping and wailing and stuff. It really is heartrending. This is what it describes was going on. These people were crushed. They were crying. They were weeping. They were grumbling. And many of them were enraged, looking for somebody they could take their anger out. I mean, think about it. Here they had been had been brought up hearing this promise of this promised land. And it's about the only thing that probably got them through their slavery time in Egypt. And now all of a sudden, God comes with Moses, brings them out, and they walk through this wilderness for two years to get right to the edge of the promised land. And as they get to the edge of the promised land, the terrified 10 says, nah, can't go in. Now we don't need to go in. Are you kidding me? are you kidding me? This is everything we've been living for. This is the whole reason we took this whole journey. Now we're right here on the edge of this land and you guys are coming back and saying, it's too scary. You can't go in. You just can't go in. Man, we'll get slaughtered in there. We don't want to be a part of that. It's all for naught. Well, that would crush you. And that's what these people are doing. They're weeping and they're wailing and they're crying. And it says here, all the congregation, verse 1, all the congregation and the people wept. And, a, and then verse 2, all the people of Israel, Into verse 2, the whole congregation. This fear and this frenzy just moved throughout all the camp. Now, nobody was talking about, hey, how did you like that report that Caleb and Joshua gave about how great the, the grapes are and all that stuff? Nobody thought about the good stuff. All they thought about was the fear and the frenzy. And it went throughout all of the camp. And nobody was thinking about God's power, God's presence, any of that stuff. Nobody's thinking about the visionary challenge that was given by, by Caleb to say, let's go occupy the land. All they could think about was what the terrified 10 said. And man, they wept all night. Well, then... All that weeping and crying turned into anger, and anger turned into rage, and whenever you get angry, what are you looking for? Somebody take it out on. And so who do you go to? Go to the leader. Said right here. And the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and they began to take it out on them. And then they began to get exasperated and said, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt? It had just been better if we just stayed in Egypt and died in Egypt. Then they came back, or would that we have died in this wilderness. It would have been better to have just died right here in their wilderness. I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. For some of them, it came true. That's exactly what's going to happen to them. But they're saying, it just been better just dying in It would been better just die right here in the wilderness. And then all of a sudden, verse 3, then they begin to say, why is the Lord bringing us into this land so that we could fall by the sword? Listen, have you ever noticed that the more that outrage people get and the more they begin to share it with others, then this mob mentality forms and all of a sudden these protests begin to increase in intensity. And as protests increase in intensity, at the same time the idiocy is what is expressed also increases. Stay with me on that. It's what we experience in our country at times. His people get upset, and they get in this rage. They get all mad. And, and then all of a sudden, they're going to protest, and half of them have no idea what they're protesting. But they're caught up in it. And then they make stupid statements that make no sense. And it just continues to increase. It's exactly what these people did. I mean, they're mad at Moses and Aaron. And they said, hey, we should have just died in Egypt. We should just die right here. Well, then look what it says in verse 3. Then they bring the Lord into it? Well, it's about time they brought God into it but they didn't bring God in to praise him. They brought him in to accuse him. And they said, why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Why is the Lord bringing us into land to fall by the sword? Wow. Why didn't we ever think of that? And God's sitting up there and saying, oh, they found me out. You know, 650 years ago, I started this whole ruse, Uh, took a guy named Abraham, promised him that he'd build a great nation, I'd put him into a land. I waited 650 years just to grab these people so they could get over here, get on the edge of the promised land, so they could go in there and get slaughtered, and I could just smile and say, it's what I wanted to have happen. You say, "That, that makes no sense. No, it makes no sense. But what happened is these people, they just began to look to God and they began to blame him. And they said, the whole reason is because you want to bring us in this land so that we could be slaughtered. And then he says, our wives and our little ones will become prey. And we can't take them in there. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. The absurdity continues. You've been in captivity 430 years. It was getting worse and worse and worse. And now here you are on the edge of the promised land, exactly what God promised you. And your response is, let's just get new leadership. Let's kick these guys out. Let's get somebody that can take us back to Egypt. You serious? You think that's good? We'd rather return to a world of slavery and bondage rather than trust the God that freed you from that world? You're not willing to take a step of faith out with God who freed you from all of that? You would rather go back into that bondage. It's sad to say we do that oftentimes in our lives. Where rather than taking a step of faith with God, we'd rather fall back into the habitual sins and the addictive nature of these other things that held us captive and held us in bondage, and we were slaves to. They said, Let's just find some leaders that can take us there. What are you thinking? Let's just say for a moment that you did that and you turned around and you began to head back. What would happen when you hit the outskirts and the, the city limits of Egypt? Do you think Pharaoh's going to be there with welcome arms saying, we're so glad you're back. i going to give you a higher salary, give you more benefits. Ever since you've been gone, I realized the worth that you've got. But see, I don't think that. I think he still ticked that half of his army is under the sea, under the Red Sea. You see, they came in and, and uh, they went to the bottom of the sea and he lost the majority of his army because of these people. I don't think he's real happy with them. And I think if they go back into slavery, it would be worse than it had ever been, but they weren't thinking about that. And then your next question is, if you replace leadership, if you say, we don't want Moses, you're, what you're saying is, we don't want God. Because Moses is God's chosen leader. And it's almost like he's saying, you don't, you don't choose Moses you don't get me. And God's the one who has been their protector. He's provided them with food every day. He's the one that's guided them. And now they're saying, we'll just take the journey without God and somehow we can make it back on a journey and we'll be able to somehow have provisions to make it back to Egypt. None of that will happen. But see, with this terrified 10, when they put all this fear in this frenzy, they're making all these crazy decisions that they're throwing stuff out, saying, we need to do this, we need to do this. And then all of a sudden you look at the trusting two along with Moses and Aaron, and look how they responded. Verse 5, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. Moses and Aaron, the two leaders, are watching all of this happening, and they didn't say a word at first. They just fell on their face. Now it's interesting when you read different commentaries, there's two different reasons. They fell on their face out of humility and submission to God, knowing that they were his leaders that he called. But then there are others that are saying they're also falling on their face because they're praying for these people because they know what's getting ready to happen. Because if they continue to rebel against God, God is going to step up and execute his judgment. And they know this. And so they bow down. And then verse 6, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who'd spied out the land, they tore their clothes. And during that day when you were lamenting and, 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 and you were uh, upset, you would take your clothes and you would tear them. It was an act of contrition. And they're sitting here watching these people rebel against God. And so uh, they, there's remorse, there's contrition, and they tear their clothes. And uh, uh, to me, out of every person that is in this crowd of hundreds of thousands, the two that are hurt for the most is Joshua and Caleb. You see, Joshua and Caleb were in Egypt. They knew what it was like to be a slave. They knew what it was like to be beaten. They knew what it was like to be treated unfairly. They knew what it was like to have absolutely no hope. You'll live a, sl- you'll be born as a slave. You'll, uh, work as a slave. You'll die as a slave. And then all of a sudden, when Moses came and God appeared in some amazing ways and did these great miracles, for two years they experienced the power and the presence of God like they've never experienced ever before. And then they've taken this incredible journey and they got right to the edge of the promised land and it's like they got tapped on the shoulder and said, you get an opportunity to see it before anybody else does. And they got to go through it. And they walked through all of this land and they saw all the amazing foods that they had and how beautiful this was. It was so different from what they had just been going through in the desert. And they are excited beyond measure. This is it. This is it. A promise that was made over 600 years ago in we. Get the opportunity to be a part of the fulfillment of this promise. Now I don't know about you, but that fired me up. And they were so jacked, they couldn't wait to give their report. And don't you, in the way, if you read the way they said it in chapter three, Caleb gave his report, and then he said, Okay, let's go, let's go, let's occupy the land, let's go now. We're organizing bus trips, we're ready to go, get them all in there. Let's occupy the land and go for it. And now all of a sudden they just put the brakes on it. And he said, Now we're not going in. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This doesn't just affect you, it affects us. It affects our families. You're saying we can't go in? No. Nope. No one's going in, no way. Well, they had to speak up. It's so all in verse seven. He says this And they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. Let me remind you what we've just seen. And uh, the literal Hebrew word, a phrasing there, good is the land exceedingly, exceedingly. Sounds like something Yoda would say. (laughs) Good is the land, exceedingly, exceedingly. All right? We say, why did they phrase it that way? It was a superlative. It was beyond anything you can imagine. Good is the land, exceedingly, exceedingly. Now, you've got to understand the horizon of these people is not very high, (laughs) I mean, all these people knew of is Egypt and desert. They can't even imagine what's all in there. And they're trying to describe to them how incredible this land was. He says, the land, it is there. It is worth it. But then in verse 8, he then lays it out. If the Lord delights in us, if the Lord delights in us, that word means to smile over. I love that. If the Lord enjoys us, if the Lord smiles over us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. He's going to bring you in the land, and he'll give you the land. If you obey him, if you trust him, God will smile over us, and he will bring us in the land and give us the land. Now, God has promised time and time again, I'm giving you the land, I'm giving you the land, I'm giving you the land. And so he lays it out, and he's stands before all of these people and says, Hold it, folks, God has promised that he will be with us and he will give us the land. In verse 9, only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. He started out, don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear these people. God is going to remove protection from them and we will overtake them. Do not fear them. Twice he says, Do not fear them. Do not fear them. They're all kind of ites in the land. They're giants in the land. Do not fear them. He's going to give it to us. We've got it. Now, you know, I'm kind of reading this. I'm trying to put myself in there and saying, You know what? I've traveled two years over here and we've been through a lot and I've seen a lot. And, uh, God has showed up in a pretty big way. And now he's telling us we need to trust him and go in there. And he's showing me grapes like I've never seen before. We haven't eaten anything like that since we've been in the desert for two years. And the pomegranates and the figs and all this other stuff, it's some pretty good stuff. And God said we can occupy the land. So as I'm reading that, I'm thinking if I'm sitting in the crowd, I'm thinking, you know what? He may just kind of sway me. You know, the the trusting two over the terrified 10 I'm feeling pretty good. So, I'm thinking verse 10 is going to be, see, is going to change, and people are going to say, it's a good idea. Let's pray about it. No, it didn't quite happen that way. Uh, Verse 10, then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Man, you know, a guy who makes his living public speaking, that is a hard verse, isn't it? I'd hate to be able to make an impassioned plea and all you guys pick up stones and throw it at me. (laughs) That didn't go well, did it? Well, that's exactly what happened with this guy. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Good gracious. Earlier in this chapter, they said, We need to change leadership. They didn't say, We got to kill the existing leadership. They said, Let's just elect the leader and let's go back in there. Now someone stands up, speaks the word of God for God, and now there's such an anger and a rage that people are taking up stones to kill these guys, to kill Moses, to kill Aaron to kill Joshua, to kill Caleb. I mean, Joshua and Caleb, these are people they grew up with. Aaron, uh, Moses, uh, they've known him for these two years and followed him. And they said, we're ready to kill them. And they step up to take their life. Well, God had had about enough of it. And in verse 10, it says, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. God showed up and showed out, and in a mighty way, the way he showed up, the people were speechless, and all they could do was marvel in reverential fear over his appearing. And when he appeared, he didn't talk to the people. I love verse 11. He talked to their leader, his servant, Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. You know what he was telling Moses? I'll just go on and strike every one of them right now which take the whole lot of them out. Now we're gonna save Joshua and Caleb and their family. We'll just build a new nation from there. And Moses had such a love for the people who were ready to stone him that he goes, no, Lord, let's don't do it that way. And he comes and he intercedes and prays for them. And in verse 20, it says, And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live and as the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Malachi's Canaanites dwell in the valleys, I want y'all to return to the Red Sea. And uh, and what God then came up and said uh, was, let me just go and lay it out for you. Every adult will die in the wilderness. They were there for 40 days spying out the land. We'll take one year for every day, and I will make you wander in the wilderness for 40 years. As you wander in the wilderness for 40 years, anyone who is aged 20 and up will die in the wilderness. Nineteen and down, their children will live and will see the promised land. And he said the only two families that will go in intact are Caleb and Joshua. Because you feared the Lord, you believed in the Lord, you trusted the Lord. And that's what will happen. And the wilderness will be littered with the bodies of this generation of adults who grumbled against me. And then, to take it a step further, verse 36. And the men who Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land. The men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. And of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua and Caleb remained alive. So these ten, they didn't even get to wander in the wilderness. As soon as, uh, as, soon as God finished his conversation with Moses, there was a plague that struck those ten and they were taken out. He said, I don't need that. I don't need that kind of venom going throughout all of this congregation. And he took them out. So, what do we learn? from these 12 spies. I want you to write these statements down because these are lessons that are learned from 12 spies and that will relate to every one of us here. Are you ready? Number one, a leader's influence is powerful and he or she will be held accountable. A leader's influence is powerful and he or she will be held accountable. For two weeks, I've been reading through chapters 13 and 14. As I have read through chapters 13 and 14, the thing that just kept coming back to me was the impact and the influence of these leaders. There were 10 men who were chosen to represent hundreds of thousands of people. And these people looked to these 10 men for wisdom, for guidance, and direction. They were the leaders. And they listened to the words that they would say. And when they came back with their particular report, when that happened, and they listened to these people, it caused an entire generation to miss the promised land. And it caused a younger generation to have to wander in a wilderness for 40 years before they could even get into the promised land. A leader's decisions have consequences, and a leader's influence is powerful, and they will be held accountable. Now, there's, if you are ever placed in a position of leadership, whether it be in a business, it'll be in your home, it'll be in your school, even be on your team, you need to understand that when that mantle of leadership falls on you, there are responsibilities that you have and you will be held accountable. And people look to you, and decisions that you make will impact and influence people and organizations. And if you're ever given leadership, I encourage you to read Numbers 13 and 14, and that put a reality check on you to say, wow, this is important. They affected an entire generation. Hundreds of thousands of lives were negatively impacted because 10 leaders were terrified and they were paralyzed by their fear. Number two, you can be around the things of God and not know the character of God nor trust the word of God. Now, we'll leave that up there for a while so you can write that down. You can be around the things of God and not know the character of God nor trust the Word of God. I would, except for the, um, except in the New Testament, when the disciples were hanging around with Jesus himself, I do not believe anywhere else in all of the Bible do you see as much um, day-to-day interaction with God and see the things of God on a daily basis. Um, When you look back over Exodus and Numbers, you see there were miracles and there were uh, miraculous things that took place. But every day for two years, the Bible says that there was a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night that was the presence of God, that God led them in their direction. When the cloud moved, they moved. If the cloud didn't move, they didn't move. Six out of seven mornings when they would wake up in the morning, there would be manna on the ground that God provided. And so every morning when you're scooping up the manna there in the wilderness, being able to have food for you and your family, you understand this is a provision of God. Every day tangibly, you can hold on to that and see that. And then there's this tent of meeting that was built and a place where, where Moses could meet with God, and it says that when he would meet with God, then when he would walk out, his face would be so aglow that they would want to put a veil over his face. And so every time you'd walk by the tent of meeting, you'd get that visible reminder of who God is. And so I've got the, the, the cloud and the pillar of fire and the man and this tent of meeting and all of these things. Every day they see this. And for two years, they were around the things of God. But yet, when they were faced with the challenges of occupying the promised land, they accused God of leading them in the land just to get them slaughtered. They were condemning his goodness. They were rejecting his grace. And what they said was totally opposite of the character of God. And it was totally opposite of the words that God had said. How can you be around the things of God for two years And when it comes to that one time to step into the promised land, you don't even know him. You're not even close. There was nothing in there about the love, the mercy, all the things God has done for us. None of that. And then they said, he called us here to slaughter us. What do you mean? For over 600 years, he keeps saying, we're going to take you into land, be fruitful and multiply. They didn't know God. They didn't know his word. All of us can be guilty of this. You see, you can be involved in the activities of Shades. You can go on mission trips. You can be around the things of God and yet not know him, nor even trust his word. It is a matter of a heart seeking a relationship with God, not a calendar filled with activities related to God. This is a good sentence. I should have put on the screen, but it didn't. Are you ready? <laughs> it's a matter of a heart seeking a relationship with God. This is what it's about. It's the matter of a heart seeking a relationship with God, not a calendar filled with activities related to God. We are a let's get after it, do it world and society and community. We live over the mountain. We know what it's like to pack our schedules full. And you could pull out your summer calendar and you can probably have all these activities listed of all these things at Shades or Mission Trips or whatever. And I'm glad that you want to do these things. But what is more important is that you would seek a relationship with God with your heart. Because you can be all around the things of God and yet really never know his character or trust his word. Okay? Number three. If you don't seek God, you can't speak for God. If you don't seek God, you can't speak for God. When these 10 spies came back, one of the statements that they made in verse three is why is the Lord bringing us in this land to fall by the sword? Why is the Lord bringing us in? They're speaking for God. Lord, why are you bringing in this land so that we would fall by the sword? How can they say something that's that off base? Don't pontificate about God's will about this and that if you have not been seeking him. Now, once in these narratives did these 10 people suggest, why don't we go on our faces before God and say, God, I know you promised us this land, but we just took a look at it. And I just got to tell you, with Him own spirit, it's kind of scary. But I know that you've promised this to us. Can you help me overcome this fear? And can you continue to give me this reassurance that this is the next step that we're supposed to take and just honestly come before God and say, Lord, I want to bring you into this equation. But they didn't. But yet they were speaking for God, but yet they were not seeking God. So before you say, I believe God's leading me to do this or that, be sure that you seek God. Number four, beware peddlers of fear and frenzy. Beware peddlers of fear and frenzy. This is what these 10 were doing. They were peddlers of fear and frenzy. They began to work these people up to a lather, and they threw out so much fear to them that they didn't know what to do. And they were just peddling that fear left and right. They never brought anything good about the land. They weren't going to talk about the goodness of God or the promises or the power or the presence of God. All they did was they brought out the fear. And I can just throw this out where we live today. This is pretty much what's happening in our world. Between today, our national media and a lot of our Washington politicians, they thrive on peddling fear and frenzy and you just got to kind of keep your feet grounded because if you watch if you just look at headlines and listen to sound bites you know oh my gosh yes there are some things that we're to be fearful about but a lot of things just blown out of proportion and the main thing is you're going to fear that feed that fear if you feed the fear you get the ratings so if I can feed the fear and the frenzy more people will read more people will watch and um, you just got to be aware of that Number five, rebellion against God makes wisdom and discernment elusive, resulting in poor decision-making. It's kind of long, but it makes sense. Rebellion against God makes wisdom and discernment elusive, resulting in poor decision-making. Rebellion against God. When we rebel against God, all of a sudden we lose our spiritual moorings. And rather than wisdom and discernment being at the forefront Worry and fear dominate our thought patterns. And thus, our decisions are driven by worry and fear and not wisdom and discernment. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if we rebel against God, then that means if I'm rebelling against Him, It means that my wisdom and discernment are elusive. And when they are elusive, I am making poor decisions. And decisions are being made because of fear and because of worry, rather than on trust and faith in God and looking for his wisdom and discernment. Just think back over your life. If you had to go back over your life and say, when did I make some of the worst decisions, okay? What are some of the poor decisions that I made? Oftentimes, if you go back and you kind of draw a little timeline to it, try to take that and then say, how were you doing with God at that time? Were you walking with him or not? And oftentimes, when we find ourselves rebelling against God, then all of a sudden, we've lost this wisdom and discernment, and we begin to make decisions out of worry and fear. And the last point is this. Godly leaders don't remain silent, and God will honor them. Godly leaders don't remain silent... And God will honor them. When the whole crowd, all the frenzy was going on, and everybody was complaining, guess what happened? The godly leaders, Moses, Aaron, uh, Joshua, and Caleb, they stand up and they speak out. Godly leaders don't need to remain silent. And so as we go through our days in this world and what goes on in our world as godly men and women, we need to stand up. And God will honor you. You say, well, Danny, look in this story. It worked out good. Because right when they're getting ready to stone them, all of a sudden God shows up. And when God shows up, they didn't throw stones at them. But that doesn't always happen. There are people being persecuted for their faith all over the world. Does God honor them? Yeah. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's uh, the um, hall of fame of all the Old Testament uh, followers And those who were, who were faithful to God. And when they cover all these uh, names that you would know in the Bible, he then comes back and he kind of wraps it up, those who died for the faith. And he says some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, all of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these were commended for their faith. All of these were commended for their faith. They stood for what was right. They spoke out as godly men and women. And some gave their lives, and they were commended for their faith. And you think about, well, you know, Joshua and Caleb and Moses and Aaron, they didn't get stoned. But in the New Testament, you know, one of those first deacons got stoned, a guy named Stephen, remember? They took Stephen uh, in Acts, and and they brought him before uh, the council, and he shared the gospel and what it meant to receive Christ as Savior, and the people all got upset at him, and they were getting ready to take his life, and he says he looked up, and when he looked up, he saw the Son of God, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, standing at the right hand of the Father, and that just angered him, and they stoned him to death. And you read about it, and you say, well, usually it's always talked about that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, but in this case, he was standing Many believe that when he stood, it was as a witness and as an advocate for Stephen. And he says, Well done. You were faithful in what you shared. You didn't back off of the gospel, you stood for the gospel, and I am going to stand for you and honor you. Listen, as godly men and women, don't be silent. And you got to stand. And God will honor that. You know, the reason that we stand for Him and we honor Him is because He went to a cross for us. And because of our sins and because of all the things we've done wrong in our lives, we were separated from God. And there's no way that we could ever come into a relationship with God. This same God of the Old Testament who desired this wonderful relationship with these children of Israel and was with them every day wanting to give them this land and to smile over them and to enjoy them. This same God has that same desire for us. But this huge gulf of sin separates us. And God had said that the wages of sin is death, that there has to be death because of sin. There has to be a payment for sin. And so he sent his son Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and for 33 years lived on this world. And as he lived here, he taught about God and he showed God's love and he he shared about how we should live in, in a right relationship with him. But then he went to a cross and he died for our sins. Voluntarily, he went to the cross. And when they crucified him, he took all the sins of the world, yours, mine, all of our sins were placed on him. And he says, I will be the sacrifice for your sins. And he died for our sins. They took his body down, placed him in a tomb. Three days later, they went back and stone had been rolled away. God had raised him from the dead. And when he did that, it confirmed everything that Jesus said. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am greater than sin, greater than death, and I can give you eternal life. And I'll give you a bridge to a relationship with God. And if you receive Christ as your Savior, then you cross that bridge, you come into that relationship with God, you are adopted into His family. He has paid the price, He's done it all. It's a matter of us receiving that gift. And so the Bible talks about how there's a Lord's Supper, the, the Passover meal that He had with His disciples. And in the midst of that meal, He began to talk to them about some of the elements to remind them about what was getting ready to take place. And so we are going to close our service with the Lord's Supper. And so those who are the, uh, in, uh, helping us with that, our ushers are helping. help me. If you would come and, and begin to get in, in place, let me just say a word uh, to those who may be guests of ours. Is this for the Lord's Supper is for those who've made decisions for Christ and uh, if you've ever made a decision for Christ, and uh, you could you call born again, adopted into God's family, accepted Christ as your Savior, asked Him into your life, then we want you to participate in this Lord's Supper. You don't have to be a member of our church. You're just a part of the church overall. Uh, but if you've never made that decision, you say, Danny, man, a lot of things you're talking about, I don't, I've never done that then what I would ask is that when we pass the cup that you would just go on and just pass the tray over and, and no need for you to take one because it's something that believers are and we're going to explain in just a moment the symbolism and significance of what we will be doing. And so uh, for those that are guests, as we pass this, we just take the uh, cup and then just hold on to it and I'll give you some instructions. So let me lead us in a word of prayer and uh, prepare our hearts for this time. Heavenly Father, we... Um, thank you so much for the, the gift that your son has given us. And uh, through his life and his death and his resurrection. And you tell us in your word that every time that we come to the Lord's table, that it is to be a time of examination. And may each one of us examine our own hearts and to see if we are walking according to your word. And may you bring the things up to us that says, you know, you need to Turn this over to me. This is something you've been holding on too long. You need to release that. Let it be a wonderful time where you not only convict us of things that have done wrong, but at the same time remind us of the things that we praise you for. And let it be a time of worship and adoration. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.